Welcome everybody to the Corresponding Author. My name is Stephanie Hicks and I'm here with my co-host John Michelli. And today I'm very excited to have Stuart Lee from Monash University visiting us. And thank you Stuart for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. All right, so to kick things off, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, uh, so I'm a PhD student at Monash University and I work on uh, visualization and software for genomic data analysis. Um, I'm supervised by Guy Cook at Monash and also uh, Matt Ritchie at the Walter Eliza Hall Institute. Nice! So data visualizations, that's super broad. Can you narrow that down a little bit? <laughs> um, or any type okay. of particular data visualization? Uh, so I would say I work mostly on like exploratory data visualization, so like not fully like polished products, but the kind of things that you do on the way to making a, a data analysis. Um, and that's like kind of the area that I'm of research that I'm interested in. It's kind of like statistical graphics and how do you kind of make graphics to like help you along your path of like doing a data analysis. So I think we talked about the other day, we talked about the word skagnostics. Uh, skagnostics, yeah. So skag, skagnostics is like a terrible like portmanteau word by, um, I think. So originally like it was invented, I think in the 70s by Chuki and Chuki, so like John, John and Paul uh, Chuki and stands for like scatterplot diagnostics. And oh, wow. I think they have another one called Cognostics, which I can't quite call it. I think it's like computational diagnostics. But the idea is kind of like, if you have like a really high dimensional data set, then it's like impossible to look at like every like pairwise kind of scatter plot. So the idea was kind of like, could you summarize or like reduce the kind of dimensionality of your, of your data set and kind of look at like, um, I guess like features that represent like the univariate or bivariate distributions of, of the variables and then look at those instead of um, every single scatter plot. Um, so the idea was kind of extended by like uh, Leland Wilkinson, I think in the early 2000s, who you may have heard of as like, he's the guy that invented the grammar of graphics. Yeah. Um, and he kind of like, Took, took the idea and kind of like expanded on it um, and came up with all these like cool ways of uh, summarizing variables using uh, like the minimum spanning tree and things like that. These weird names like stringy or like clumpy or striated to like kind of describe the shapes of, of different um, variables. Yeah. I think it's an interesting idea that is like not quite caught on, but yeah. I'm curious, how did you get into data visualization sort of as your PhD focus? That's really unique. Uh, well, I think I saw a talk by Dai um, when she was talking about her like visual inference kind of work. Uh, so the visual inference idea is kind of like, I think of it as like people value uh, inference. So like you basically like generate like simulate like data under like a null hypothesis and then draw a graphic to like represent the test and then basically like show people the, the graphic like using like mechanical tech and then saying like which one is the data or like which one do you think like is different between these like groups and then kind of um, go off and get people to, to judge these things. 
And I thought that was like a really cool idea. And then I looked up Jai and it's like, oh, like she has like really cool, <laughs> <It's amazing. laughs> like really cool work that she does. And, and then I was like, oh, like she has all these like famous PhD students. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> I was like, I would go and chat with her. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then, yeah, uh, that's kind of, and then I was like always interested in like the visualization aspect of, of data analysis. Yeah, I kind of went from that. Nice. And so you're in you're in town for Bioconductor, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So what is Bioconductor? Uh, so Bioconductor, I guess, is like a it's like an organization and like a kind of centralized repository for data and R packages and data for like related to bioinformatics and genomics and all the other omics yeah. data that you. You kind of think of it as like a sister project to CRAN. It's actually yeah. on the CRAN website as like other types of websites that you should check out. The repository of our packages. Yeah. I like how it's open source and open development. So all the code is open source, but then it's really open in terms of developers as well as users. I think like one of the really great things about it is like the, um, at least like, I mean, I've like had packages going CRAN and like, like the process of getting a package on Bioconductor is one quite streamlined, but also like there's like a lot of onboarding, like to make sure that you're kind of doing the right thing. Oh yeah. So like, <laughs> you, like <laughs> you have like like kind of core developers like reviewing your code, being like, oh, I tried this out, it doesn't really work. And yeah, I think it, it's like it's a. I mean, I found it really, like a really enjoyable process, like kind of getting it on, getting a package on that. Have you, have you been to the conference before? Uh, yeah, I went, I went last year. So last year I was in Toronto. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it, was a lot, it was a lot of fun. It was the first one I went to. I've never been, so like, what kind of is the setup for? Well, I don't, I don't do omics, really. I do yeah. bioinformatics, but not the bio that really is kind of under the bioconductor right. flag. How would you describe it? Um, Ooh, I so one I, I think like something that is a little different about the conference is it seemed like a lot friendlier than <laughs> a lot of other conferences I've been That's to. Good. Yeah, like as in people seem pretty like friendly and uh, like enthusiastic, and there's like a kind of a, a sense of community. I think I don't know if you agree with that, Stephanie. Um, yeah. But yeah, it it was. Um, it's like uh, there's like no like other, there's like not a sense of like competition. People just like working together on like a common goal. So like, and it's a lot of putting like faces to names. Yeah, and stuff faces like to names. Like oh okay, that's that person who like maintains this like whole package. Yeah. Yeah. I have to track a few of those down next week <laughs> as well. I mean, like, why did you break this thing? <laughs> well, it's funny on the flip side. I went to a, a different conference and I met you know someone who's developed uh, a lot of the work I'm actually collaborating with, but this package. I had never met them in person, and he gave a presentation, you know, talking about open source materials and kind of saying, you know, free is in speech, not free is in beer, like discussing that stuff. But he's like, but if you have used my open source stuff, I will, I will take a free beer. You will? Yeah. So I just thought it was interesting that, like, you know, I never thought about that. Like someone who's I, you know, rely on like the bedrock of their foundation. Like, yeah, at a conference, I feel like in the future, I'm like, yeah, let me buy a beer. I use your package like all the time. Yeah. Right. So maybe there's oh, some man. some interactions like that in the bioconductor. Yeah, I mean, 
that they definitely are. I feel like that's, I mean, I know for sure, like, one one core member who I won't name is, like, very into beers. So maybe that helps with the onboarding yeah. process. Yeah, that helps yeah. <laughs> Well, like, thing, my code isn't that bad that you have to be like drunk to get through it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> one thing I like about my connectors compared to other conferences is that they have a what's called a developer day. So they have like a main conference, which is usually two days, but the day before the main conference is dedicated towards only really geared towards people who develop bioconductor packages. And so there are a unique set of problems <laughs> and challenges that developers face that users don't necessarily face. And so it's nice to sort of get into a room and talk about these issues that have bubbled up over the last year. It could be like a new technology that's developed in bioconductors trying to maybe develop new infrastructure for it or, oh, we can develop new methods for it. But I, I like the unique aspect that there's like this concept of a developer day where we can all share yeah. grievances about it and sort of make progress on how to address these challenges. And it seems like, at least from the outside, like, Having the developer day kind of enables like really like useful and important collaboration, especially like uh, so. I think like one example is like this single cell uh, kind of RNAC that's coming out, and I feel like a lot of the community members have like rallied around like a common like data structure for, for looking at that, which is like really great. I think yeah. like, that's like really impressive that you can get people to agree on like. This, this thing. I'm, I'm kind of jealous about that. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> like a neuroconductor. Uh, there are a lot of people who develop uh, different data structures for different purposes, and some of them are faster, but some of them will play well with like native R a little bit better. So it's like we have five different ways to read in. The same. Five. Well, yeah, but it, they have different properties and. and so do you have conversion functions that allow you to go between them? I've written a lot of them, um, okay. but you know, kind of holds to an ecosystem and you know you're very spoiled in bioconductor because um, in some respects it's great because they help you a lot but they do enforce rigidity they do right so I think you know whenever you're developing something I, I, I think the longer I've become a developer I think taking away choices is actually becoming more common for me than enabling like so many yeah because you know I, uh, I writing all those choices in there and kind of all those if scenarios is like really hard to, to troubleshoot, and so uh, we're trying to enforce we're trying to enforce some some structure on it. But you know when you have stuff that's like C plus plus pointers and stuff like that and overloading operators, all the things that has to be done to make that stuff work play well with like everything it takes it takes a lot of work and energy. So um, yeah, it, it's just really nice to see the community being like yes. We all agree, or most of us agree, and then they can make kind of a judgment that maybe makes people like force uh, lockstep behind them. So that's right. that's great. Yeah. Um, okay. Can we switch topics? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is a podcast about all things academic data science, and you are a PhD student, so you're sort of in academia. But a question of: Do you kind of identify yourself? As more of a statistician, a data visualization expert, a data scientist, or like, how do you think about yourself in that realm? Or what are the differences? Uh, so, I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself as like a data, sorry, data visualizer, um, or like someone who is in that that kind of field. I, I feel like that's more like along like you know, you're making like products for like people to kind of like 
um, interact with and that, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I feel like a data scientist, I, I would classify myself as a data scientist. I, I feel like a statistician does like more like theoretical things, like proving that like a, you know, the like the mean distribution of an estimator is like normal or whatever. And that, that kind of side of things is like not, not, not my cup of tea. Um, so I feel like yeah, uh, data science to me, I guess, is like I'm like I'm okay, I'm a, an okay enough programmer to like kind of build a package, um, and I can like if you give me a data set, I can like look at it and see if I can figure out what's going on. I think that's like how I would kind of define it, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've had a lot of discussions on previous episodes about data science, and I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think we just love getting to hear different input on how people are thinking about themselves as a data scientist or not, or how they're thinking about data science. So. Yeah. It also feels like if you call yourself a data scientist, like you get more money. Like, in oh! Time, so. <laughs> hey, it's a lot of it's branding, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. You know, <laughs> selling, selling yourself is, is part of the job, right? In academia, I mean, that's what grants are in a lot of respects. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, on grants so far, I haven't necessarily advertised myself as like, I'm a professor of data science. I mean, no, no, I mean, just selling, oh, advertising, okay. and yeah. marketing your oh, research and yourself and right. your work. And data science is another different brand that some people seem more, I don't know, maybe you're saying, say, pay a bit more yeah. for that, that brand. But maybe not necessarily in academia. So I'm curious, like when you are uh, looking at people on Twitter and you're thinking about other people, like how do you evaluate whether somebody's really a statistician or data scientist or computer scientist or an engineer? Like, where how do you draw that line? Or are there like particular features that stand out to you? If you publish in Jazza, you're a statistician. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can also be a data scientist. You're, you're, you're at least a statistician if you're in. In the RSSP. Or you're trying to keep your statistician creds. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I find this I don't, I don't know. Do, do you think there's like an outlet for like pure like kind of data science work? Like I, I would say I don't really. I can't think of like any like journals that are like. I mean, I'm sure there are like data science specific journals, but yeah, it's not something that I would use to like identify it. One I know that's just starting is the Harvard Data Science Review. Okay. That's starting. There's a Harvard Business Review that's been around for a long time, but they're starting like a, a sister, I guess, publication. I'm curious to see how that goes. They haven't released their first edition, so, but it's meant to be, my understanding is it's meant to be more like an airport read, not necessarily like a super technical read, but data science things. So, yeah, I could see like a, like a data science, if it was a journal would really focus on the dirtier parts of data analysis. I could see like all the things leading up to the analysis. Whereas all, a lot of papers are like, this is the analysis, right? But do you think that just means like another package? Like when you say the dirty parts of a data analysis, I mean, like, like somebody's, you, what would that publication look like? Would it be just like a publication of a package that they wrote for cleaning? Or would it be more like the theory of how you clean or I mean, I mean, I think there. I think we've discussed this a little bit before. That I definitely think there's a theoretical arm of data science that, like, 
I do think that uh, that statisticians, in some respects, have have done things like you know we talked about uh, Cleveland and like visualization concepts that like what best ways are what are the best ways to present data um, in a visual framework, and I'm sure you've done a lot of work um, in that regard, right? But like that's that to me is like a theoretical work of a data science product, right? So yeah. it's like so things like that I think are theoretical, but like what I was discussing was like you know I could see data science journal where the, the method section is like two pages long, right, where it's right. the whole, really what papers in some respects claim to be, like, a, you could reproduce this analysis after you read this, you know, essentially notebook or diatribe of all the things it took to get right. the data to where it was not an analytical endpoint. So you want to see, like, the messiness in, like, the, the data science Yeah. Out. Okay. I mean, I think it's a little, it's a little, uh, too clean in some papers. Like we took the data, like that's like one line, and that one line took six months. And, oh, I yeah. love that when I see like neural net papers that have implemented neural networks, for example. There are all these steps that and decisions that have to be made about how they're going to um, process the data, and it's always like we applied this, we applied this, we applied this. But then I dig into it or I ask the authors, for example, like how did you make those decisions? And it's always like it took us six months <laughs> to figure out what the right steps were. <laughs> Yeah, like t work time to uh, uh, amount of words on your manuscript are not one-to-one, -one, or even the ratio is just way off. Right, right. right. Oh, that's great. Um, so where do you publish, or where, where do you like to publish? Or within your group, maybe? Well, group? yeah, I mean, I, I only have one publication, so. Congratulations, that's <laughs> um, great. Thank you. Uh, I don't know, like, I feel like uh, definitely, like, the... The Journal of Statistical Software seems to be like a pretty like targeted, like a kind of for our group or at least like that seems to be like you can get like an R package into that journal like you're doing well. Um, and then I guess like I um, was like an editor in chief for like the Journal of Computational and Graphical Statistics, I think JCGS, um, and so like a lot of Things that like don't quite fit in anywhere else, like you're doing like visualization work, but it's not quite like for like the visualization community. It's like a good place to for that kind of work. I'm curious, do you know of journals that are meant for interactive graphics or publishing papers with interactive graphics or software with interactive graphics? Um, I think it's mostly around like um, so there's like a really big visualization conference called PIS, and so like a lot of that kind of stuff comes out. Um, but nothing like I guess like it's they're kind of removed from like programming languages that are used for data analysis like R and Python. It's interesting because I feel I think JCGS does some of those things, but the interesting aspect of that is more or less if you're going to have it in a journal, in almost all respects, you're going to have to backend it in JavaScript most of the time. I feel like yeah, right? right, like even if it's D three and you wrote a package that makes like visualizations in R. 2D3 or Plotly or or any of the other interact like R bouquet and all those there's other things that do interact interactivity between R and there eventually they end up as a JavaScript product so it's just interesting that you would have it, and it could almost only be right in online right, right. there's no you know not sending somebody well, out an I, iPad I definitely like have talked to a few people and like you know like um, like I think like uh, Greg Wilson I think he works at Art Studio now like for a long time was like 
he thinks like JavaScript would be like the language, uh, like the uh, jour of data science, like in the next five years, which is an interesting. Oh really? What's his argument by that, or why does he say that? I think it's just like because it's like it's pretty easy for like non-programmers to learn JavaScript and. So much of like the world is already in JavaScript, like it's like the barriers to entry are like pretty low, and it's like not going from like doing analysis to like a web product is like um, yeah, it's like it's pretty straightforward, I think. And everybody's got a browser. And everybody's got a browser, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit. The if we, you can figure out the data constraints or the data size constraints for having to load everything into the browser. Like if you can figure that out, then like things open up like yeah. very, very widely yeah. after some of that. And I think like if there was like a ggplot for JavaScript, that would like go a, go a long way. Is there, do you know of anything in the works? Um, so there's a library called Vega and Vega Lite. The Vega Lite is really, really nice, um, which I think is like essentially I mean, it is like a grammar of graphics kind of approach. For people who might not know what Vega is. So, so Vega is um, it's a JavaScript library for visualization. I think it was developed out of Jeffrey Hears group at the University of Washington. And uh, he's like former students of like uh, responsible for D3 and like a whole bunch of like kind of JavaScript nice. visualization. And there, and there are, I think there are packages in R that create Vega. Yeah, yeah. There's, like a, there's one called Vega Widget um, from Ian Little out of iOS. Like, yeah. Also really useful. Yeah, the HTML widgets kind of framework where you essentially have an R package that like produces a JavaScript output seems to be kind of the, the bridge that we're yeah. trying to make where it's just like, you just have to know R, <laughs> but here's this nice interactive thing. Yeah, you don't have to know any. I think it seems to be like one of the strengths of R is like it's really good at interfacing with other languages and like external software. So yeah, it plays nice. <laughs> well, I was reading your website, so StuartLee.org earlier, and you have this nice blog post called Rookie Mistakes and How to Fix Them When Making Plots. And I thought it was really interesting in the sense that it, it's almost like there were a set of um, checklist or like items that people make mistakes and rookie mistakes and I was wondering if you could just kind of like list them or talk about how you stumbled across these or how did you learn them and you just like yeah. you learned over time or other books you've read? Um, sure so the blog post which I, I read a while ago um, so not like it's 2018 yeah it's, right, it's 2018 but it feels like a long time ago and it kind of <laughs> Um, it kind of came out of uh, some some work with so it's co-written by Jai, um, my supervisor, and it came out of like I guess this like first year data science course that we have at Monash that Jai teaches, and we were kind of getting students to analyze a survey about themselves and their feelings about the course, uh, and we kind of had prompted them to like, you know, uh, talk about like how they could show like different ways of like comparing like their answers to different questions. And so um, the blog post kind of came out of like seeing like how people were 
presenting their data and maybe what they could improve on. Um, so a lot of the times it's like really kind of simple things of like thinking about like what you are trying to show to the audience and how you are going to assist them to make, um, like to reveal to themselves like what you are trying to communicate. So I kind of clear it like one, that, that's very vague, but um, one kind of like clear thing is like if you are trying to um, get people to look at the difference between two things or like compare things, then you should put them like close together. And that's like this principle of like proximity. And then there's like this other concept called like change blindness where like it's like if you if your eyes like have to move around a lot and there's like a subtle change then you won't be able to detect that. Um, so it's like how you position things like when you're doing like facets and ggplot kind of determines like what you're going to get out of mm -hmm. the visualization. Yeah. Um, and so like there's a few like really good books for kind of learning about that kind of aspect of of visualization and like the more like cognitive science and like perception aspects. So one of them is um, by uh, Tamara Munza. I think the book is called Visualization Analysis and Design. And it kind of goes through like all those like basic principles. And then another really great one that like Dai had shown me is called like, I think it's called like Making More Effective Graphics by um, uh, Naomi Rollins, I think. And that one has like a lot of R code and like practical examples. Oh, nice. Yeah. Do you, so John, do you do ever like some interactive visualizations or just crazy visualizations in general? Um, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll make a ggplot2 graphic and then I'll use the plotly, ggplotly function to make it interactive. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are some neuroconductor packages that do three-dimensional visualizations of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and then I wrote a wrapper for this thing called Papaya, which is a like brain image visualization. You can like scroll through things and embed it into like a R Markdown document and that kind of stuff. So somebody wrote the JavaScript uh, library for that. Um, but I will say like the thing is with interactive graphics that I've seen with collaborators that is really beneficial is you know I've given a, a document to someone and you know I'll look at you know we look at a scatterplot for example. And I'm really focused on the core of the data, right? The, the blob of the data, most of the points. And almost always I would find like collaborator be like, who's that all the way out here? Like the outliers of what they really cared about. And then having them be able to click on it and then getting the ID, they were just like, like it just solved a lot of problems because it would be like, let's go here, and then I'd have to pull up my laptop, and it would be like, then load the data, and then like I'd have to subset based on some whatever they're doing, and then they just click it and they can kind of explore there. So um, yeah, I haven't given a lot of thought to some of the concepts you, you've described, but the interactivity, collaborators love it, and it just seems like the future to them. Do you use them? Um, so I built a few shiny apps, but I'm noticing, similar to your experience with collaborators, the more and more I work with collaborators, the more and more that they are demanding and, I would say, expecting um, the ability to have, like, a point and click. I mean, they want some kind of, like, our studio server running in the background uh, where they can, like, as you said, like point and click on observations and, and quickly identify which ones, or what genes are driving, or like what features are driving the differences in the observations and things like that. So, yeah, it's something that I very much want to learn more about. So, I'm so happy to have you here <laughs> to talk to us about it.
I guess like for me there's like a kind of difference in I, I guess like presenting like interactive graphics to a collaborator versus like using it in your own workflow. workflow. Yeah. Um, I'm just like curious if like you you do that at all or like is it something that you kind of reserve for like presenting? So is it like a finished product or is it part of the workflow? Yeah, yeah. Or like would you ever like kind of do that for yourself instead of like if you looked at the scatter plot and you saw like some weird thing to like have it like set up as like you click on this and see the label rather than like going back into the problem is it usually takes there's like an on-ramp of additional effort that it yeah. takes to make the additional but to make the interactivity yeah work and it's it can be non-trivial or it might be a lot of work and so depending on how fast you can get to a point of interactivity the more likely i'm to use it also depends on if it's like requires me to leave my workflow entirely for example if i have to go to a separate website or a separate place to do some kind of interactive analysis mm -hmm. i'm less likely to incorporate that into my workflow because it's a way it makes it less reproducible yeah um so there are some tools out there that do allow for reproducibility but the the more i have to leave my workflow or the less or the more work it takes to get to that point the less likely i'm to use it yeah, I tend to use them more as like finished products yes. a lot of times, um, or visualizations. And uh, I think when you were saying interactivity, I think getting interactivity on like a single plot can sometimes be e easier. Uh, all, all the you know, if you want to be able to do like all the things at the same time, right. it's kind of hard. All the things. Yeah. All these ones. All, all the. Things. I want to be able to pan and zoom and like all, so Plotly. I think gave yeah. gives a lot of that things, but um, I haven't used like the crosstalk package that much. But um, once you create one interactive thing. And another one that aren't really bound together, and then for example, collaborators are like, well, if I substitute here, I want you to do something over here. Like I think that there is a, a gap there where like that process is very difficult um, to bind two interactive graphics together if they don't talk well with each other. Yeah. Um, and and then there is the the thing where it's like if it's shiny and it's like, oh, that server has R on it, versus like I want to just make this a web page. Yeah, that static that that discussion is, is seems a lot. It's not very technical, but it's just like you can only do this with a server, and they're like, "What are you talking about? It's just a web page, right?" So everything's just a web page, but to us, we see things going on. What's going background. on in the background? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you use them in your in your workflow, or like, how do you feel? Like, uh, no, I feel like I use them in the same way. Like, it's oh, really? it's. Um, like you said, there's a there's a lot of barriers to kind of incorporate it into a workflow and just doing simple things like yeah, like link scatter plots or like like using a brush, like all that kind of stuff is I mean it seems to me like pretty tricky. I think like packages like Vega Widget like kind of lower the barrier to entry, but it's still like not something that like I would do all the time. I could see if you if you d adopted like a network. Oh, sorry, uh, the notebook kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. um, so, like for example, when I do our markdown, it still goes to the console. But if you think of like Jupyter notebooks or something like, that, if you work maybe in that framework, like hardcore, I could definitely see the interactive graphic make a lot of sense because like you plot it, it goes right below it. You're already staying yeah. in the system. I think as well. Like, that's one of I I don't know if you've heard of the like observable notebooks. No, what's that? Um, so. There, there's like another kind of it's like a Jupyter-esque kind of thing but for JavaScript but it's like fully um, reactive so like if you make a change in one cell like everything 
probably goes through and like wow. so like a lot of like really cool um I guess like explanations of like different algorithms and stuff are on there and it just like makes a little change at the top and then like it all comes like flows right down throughout the document. Um, so I think like that kind of place is like yeah it's where like you can actually start like incorporating it into your to your workflow. So I mean you've written a good deal of packages. Do you wanna do you wanna plug any for your visualization <laughs> or your analysis? Um ooh. or any can package, I can I plug other tables? Yes, or packages that you like. I don't I don't I don't mean like yeah. So I think like that's the statistician in you, not not <laughs> the self-promoting. No, um, it's just the maybe the academic where it's like. Or maybe yeah. I'm like I'm a bit sick of maintaining some of my packages, and I don't want to bring more people to them. Um, uh, so I really like. Uh, so like, I think like one package that I definitely use like a lot, and this is through like my um, the group that I'm in is uh, called BizDat. Uh, by Nick Chaney and basically it just like lets you kind of get like a visual overview of like everything that's in your data set like so when you get a new data set and you want to load it in R and you want to like know things like you know what are the types of my variables how many variables are there like where are the missing values how many missing values are there this is like a great way of like kind of looking at that visually um, and then I also have to like plug my um, Office mates packages like Eero Wang, who is like mm. an amazing like R yes. programmer, um, and she's written like this great package called Sybil, um, T S I B E L E. We had a lot of arguments about the name and whether you could pronounce it, but I um, always wonder <laughs> how you actually pronounce that. <laughs> and it's like a DeFi kind of backend for like time series, and it it, it works like it, yeah, it's. Um, yeah, it just works really, really well. And um, as well, like, if you've got like time series data, like she has some, uh, some other great packages for, for analyzing that as well. Do you work a lot with time series data? Uh, I've only kind of, so this is like the weird thing in my PhD is like I'm doing like genomics and bioinformatics in a department of econometrics. Um, that is so interesting. That is why I have kind of like learned about like time series and like gotten to like play with a few time series data sets. Um, so I would say I don't really work on it like day to day though. Yeah. Well uh, yeah so do you want to move on to our, our segment of a uh, data science dinner party which again is like um, whatever you've done kind of academically or, or data science in the last like week or two or last month uh, how would you kind of describe that maybe to a non-technical non-data science person at like a dinner party? So would you like to start? Uh, sure, okay. Uh, so at the moment, I'm, um, we're kind of working on, or like I'm helping out on kind of writing some, some documentation for, I guess, like putting together like a, a data science course, uh, an okay. online data science course. Online, okay. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like writing, uh, writing like, Copy, I guess, is what they call it in like the online education world. It's like really, really difficult <laughs> and time-consuming because you have to like basically like explain these like really like technical concepts and like I guess it's like this um, uh, like these technical concepts and like really like 
kind of fun and um, expressive language without like saying all the technical terms, which was, was quite hard. But yeah. yeah. How about how about you two? Uh, I am giving a presentation at the Bioconductor Annual Conference that's happening next week, so I'm preparing a presentation for it. But I'm giving a talk on a package that I wrote, or I collaboratively wrote with Debbie Day Russo and Elizabeth Purdom. And the idea is if you want to, if you have a set of data and you want to just cluster and figure out how many clusters are in your, or how many clusters of observations you have, for example, or features, you can apply an algorithm called K means. Everybody probably knows what K means is. And the idea that we are focused on is if you have data that's so large that you can't even load it into memory, what do you do if you want to cluster your data? So if you have like image data, you know, millions of observations, single cell genomics is an area, a type of genomic data that I work with and we're preparing for millions, potentially billions of observations. And so whether or not you actually want to cluster a million observations is another story, but it's coming. Like the ability to just, we this, this algorithm is basically built for that question. Like it allows you to cluster data with potentially millions or billions of observations. And the way we do it is we use what's called mini-batch k-means algorithm. And uh, it's written by Scully in 2010. The algorithm was written and we just implemented it and put it into our bioconductor package. Um, and we have the ability to work with HDFI files. So these are files that um, data are stored on disk and then you can load in portions of the data like whatever dimensions you want. So whether you want like a given row with all the features or a given feature with all the rows um, or lists of columns that you can load in um, and you can control how much data you load in and then you can cluster your data essentially. It's a really nice algorithm. So if you ever have data with millions of observations and you just want to cluster them, check it out. So I guess that's really technical. Yeah. I just realized. Okay, my how question. Would I, yeah. How would I make that? Uh, yeah, I was gonna ask like, what dinner party are you going to? Oh, Everyone knows oh, like, okay. like. <laughs> Let's see. I wrote an R package to be able to cluster your data on really, really big data. Sounds good. So I'm just getting HDF five and stuff like that. So I'm kind of interested in that. But as a statistician in me, you're like, I want to do millions or billions, and you can't load it in. The statistician in me just says, Well, what happens if you just sample the data and run it? That's good. Does that work? Can you sample? So mini batch, the algorithm itself, mini batch K means, it takes what's called mini batches. So you take, for example, one percent of the data, and uh, that's a batch, mm -hmm. and then you load it into memory, and then you do, uh, you run an algorithm on it, and then you take in the next one percent, and the next one percent. But you control the size of the batch, so you control essentially like how much memory is being used at any given point in time. There's this trade-off of like huge reduction in memory and huge um, savings in time to be able to run the k-means algorithm, there's a slight loss in accuracy, but like astronomical savings in terms of memory and time. Yeah, I guess my sample 10% runs is that any different? Well, it depends on how heterogeneous of data you have. So for example, in the world of genomics with single cell, people after, often after these like really rare observations, and so those rare observations are not necessary. If I'm only sampling your 1% of my data at a given time, um, you're probably not gonna realistically capture that 1%. And so it'll be a little bit harder to converge, but you want to be able to load in all the data yeah. at a given point. Yeah. Just not at the same time. Yeah. Um, all right, John. Yeah, I so. I think I failed on that. So <laughs> I, I taught a class last week uh, about introduction to R, which is about a four hour a day for five days. Um, and 
It was it was good, but I guess the the most um, bare bones way I would describe it to a person is teaching someone like a foreign language, where the only person you get to talk to is the most strict person on grammar you've ever met, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I think about an R, right? So like in, you know in, if you are learning French or Spanish or something like that, you can kind of stumble along the way, and like another person kind of gets what you're saying. Like R is like no. If you don't speak exactly the way I say it, it does not work, right? So I, I always try to liken it to a new language and then talk about grammar and nouns in the same way, right? And we teach like dplyr verbs and we talk about tibbles and data frames as like nouns and vectors and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, more or less, we taught a class, tried to teach it in a framework where we're like, this is a new language, learn it this way, and saw how it worked. And the technical aspect, me and my co-instructor had a had a division, I, for a brand new user who has rectangular data, like, I don't think we should have to teach them lists at all. I don't mm-hmm. think they should ever need to be exposed to them in the first week of them learning R. Right. Because, they're, yeah, there's already enough to learn in a week, so. How did you guys learn R? Is it, like, on your own, or is it a class in your PhD curriculum, or? I mean, I know um, high schoolers are now learning it, yeah. so I, I, I didn't even know are existed until the high school. I think I first saw it in like the idea like class at uni, like in undergrad. Uni, I love it. Um, <laughs> college. I love it. <laughs> um, and then I actually took uh, Roger Kane's Coursera course. Oh, um, nice. And that's how I like kind of started to get into it. Like I, I worked a little bit as like a data analyst. And we use SAS, and I couldn't figure out how to make graphics in SAS, so that's why I learned ours because I wanted to use GPT 4 too. Nice. Um, yeah, and I did Roger's course. <laughs> cool. Roger, Roger taught me a little bit, it was in person, so it was right. in here at, at Johns Hopkins. And um, I will tell like one little side story about that. So, oh, nice place. Roger w- would work on the command line and do tab completion, right? So he hits tab and then it completes a word if you wrote a little bit of it. And I didn't know what that was at the time. So I thought he was the fastest typer I have ever seen. Super like human. I thought, like I was trying to keep up and I was like, how did he do it that fast? Like his like fingers aren't moving that fast. It was like it was like dark magic. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, and um, I learned an R and the R app, not the R, R Studio didn't exist. And then a postdoc here actually uh, showed me some of the ropes. Um, and what was interesting, uh, so a lot of people, if you look at their code, it's, it has a very specific and unique style. I know some faculty in this department, their temporary bot variables are like junk. Uh, they say junk one, junk two, or X. I use X all the time. But, uh, that's not good. This, uh, what? That's fine. Oh, and they get overwritten. It's, I know that's always temporary. Um, okay. But that postdoc used animal names. So like cow and pig, and so it'd be like cow plus pig equals like dog or something. Like, so it was just funny because I, I after that it was um, a lot of the code I had written had like a bunch of animal names and it took a while for that to like, fade away. <laughs> yeah, it was just like what is cow? And I was like, I don't know. It's like some data frame or something. And yeah, it's just funny <laughs> when you see somebody else's code. They have like everybody's got their unique style. I think you can do some forensics pretty yeah. pretty easily on finding whose code it was. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think we'll call that a wrap. So thank you so much, Stu, for coming on the podcast today. It was great to talk to you and kind of figure out a little bit about data visualizations. Thank you. I've had a lot of fun. And we'll have in the show notes the uh, link to your blog post. And um, if Stephanie's slides are up, we will have them as well.
Thanks, everyone.